0: Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune podcast. So before I get into the main topic of of today's podcast, I want to take some time to talk about uh, this this recent news item that most of you have probably seen uh, regarding Joe Rogan and Spotify. Now, I'll talk more about that later on in this podcast uh towards the end uh, because i i want to get to the main topic here quickly but i want to start off briefly and and simply state that a lot of the topics that joe rogan and his guests discuss regarding politics and and covid which is inherently political these days are topics that i don't discuss on this podcast oftentimes because they aren't pertinent so they don't get discussed however on the topic of free speech and on the topic of platforms allowing their creators to speak freely on these matters i am 100% in favor of that i'm 100% in favor of spotify's recent decision to you know not bend the knee to neil young and company and and you know the the censorship the the leftist uh, um calls for for you know uh, canceling or or censoring joe rogan and his guests voices um i'm 100% a fan of their decision to not deplatform him. I wish it was a decision that, that YouTube and many other platforms would have made in the past. They haven't. But the reason I bring this up, besides that I'll be talking about it more later on in this podcast, is that I am on Spotify. I'm actually on most major podcast platforms for those of you that are on YouTube and and aren't aware of that. Um, You can find me on Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, um, and and many others including spotify in fact my podcast is hosted actually by uh um, anchor.fm which distributes it to all these different uh podcast platforms it saves me a lot of time a lot of work and, and anchor actually uh was was bought by spotify not so long ago a year or two ago and so if you want to support me and if you want to support anchor and their decision to um you know side with, with free speech, find me over there. There's a link down below in the description. I'm sure YouTube won't appreciate that. I don't care at this point, their algorithm hasn't been kind to me in the past few years anyways. So, um, find me over there and, um, I mean, let your voice be heard. I mean, Spotify is going to be dealing with some people leaving their podcast platform or, or, or choosing to not use it to listen to music because of their decision on, 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 to keep, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast available. Um, and, and they need as many people as possible to, to show their support and say, Hey, I'm here for this podcast content. I'm here for, for, you know, because I, I value, uh, you know, your decision to not do what so many other media platforms have done in the past. So again, link down below in the description, if you want to finish up this episode down there. Anyways, um, there's a lot of you guys that already listen to me on the pod- podcast platforms or on Spotify. And I appreciate that a ton, by the way, getting to the main topic of today's podcast, the, the global economy, the, the biggest threat to the global economy, the biggest threats, plural to the global economy are often pretty obvious, um, especially the u.s economy there there are a lot of times things that i've talked about in the past for example the risk of persistently high inflation because the fed and the u.s government uh well first off have made years and years of poor decisions and second off would would be unwilling to deal with that inflation through some uncomfortable periods of monetary tightening and cutting back on their spending um they're they're not going to do that um eh, th- they look as though they might but but anyways i'm that's an obvious potential risk to the global economy, as is uh, a policy error on the Fed's part uh, of, of raising rates too much and tightening monetary policy too much and, and creating some sort of liquidity crisis and a market crash and whatnot. A, a war in, in Eastern Europe, which which it certainly seems like we're on the brink of right now, that would be that would be a risk to the global economy. that is pretty obvious. And, and there's many others, right? Um, just the fact that the global economy and the U.S. economy are, are saddled up to their eyeballs in debt at the government, the consumer, the corporate level, that at some point, you know, you only can kick the can so far down the road. At some point, that's going to, to give out, give way to, to a massive crash, massive inflation. That's obvious. Okay. What I want to talk about here today does not pertain to those topics specifically, but instead, not the first, but the second largest economy in the world. And that is China. China. Now this isn't being covered a whole lot by, by the alternative or by the mainstream media, but China's economy continues to struggle for, for two reasons. And the first one, again, is a little more obvious. China has had a, a pretty strong low tolerance policy for, for COVID. Now I don't believe for a second that they have somehow found a way to control COVID over the past two years with the exception of, you know, Wuhan early on, that they've somehow been able to control and, and no other country in the world has, period. I don't buy that for a second. I think that they have gamed these numbers. Um, I don't think they have some special vaccine. I don't think they have some special treatment. Um, there's a lot of people that have died in China that are, are simply not accounted for in their numbers, right? However, when it becomes more visible, They, they do crack down on it. And, and that's part of, of one of their economic troubles just more recently in the past month or two with this most recent wave that they have been, you know, shutting down factories, shutting down ports. Um, not unlike what they did in early 2020. Not to the same extent, but certainly to an extent that's going to be damaging to their economy. However, what's been discussed a little bit less than that has been their ever, or their ever, their ongoing problem with Everground and, and the massive, um, the massive, uh, financial giant that that is in China's, uh, you know, real estate and, and construction sector. Um, it, it was a huge lender that is still kind of in the process of a massive slow motion blow up. And it's being followed by many other major financial companies. I'm going the same way. I mean, this is akin to, you know, in the United States, if, if, uh, you know, Wells Fargo blew up and, and then, you know, Citibank is, is about to go under and, and, um, Bank of America and, you know, you're going on and on. I mean, that's sort of what it's looking like in China right now. It's a huge risk to their economy. But, but what I want to talk about today is not just the, the problem that poses that that's a big part of, of what I'll be talking about here in a second but some of the recent data out of China has been downright scary for the global economy. Because the global economy, as we know, has really been pulled forward over the past 10, 12, 13 years, since the Great Recession, by, by two factors. A ton of monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus by a lot of Western countries, including the U.S., and, and, and the EU and the UK and, and, you know, we'll add Japan in there, there as well, even though they aren't a uh, Western country. Um, and, and the other one is, is emerging economies, especially China. There, there's other ones as well, but China is, of course, obviously the largest. China has been the biggest, you know, impetus for, for economic growth in the past 15 years globally. Without the expansion we've seen in their economy in the past 15 years, the global economy would be, we would not have seen the recovery we did. Now of course, I mean their their debt, it ha- their recovery it has to be mentioned was mostly fueled by debt and stimulus. Uh, a huge amount of credit growth, especially within their corporate uh, sector. Uh you know with with their with their quasi-socialistic or communist economy, it's um it's somehow hard. It's sometimes hard to to tell the difference because when you have you know corporate debt in a communist country, I mean, is it corporate debt or is it you know all shared by everyone? Is it is it all just communal debt, whatever you want to call it? But point being, massive amounts of credit growth has has led to that, and some of this recent data coming out of China, specifically their PMI numbers, shows that they are in for potentially an economic contraction, which is a big deal. Um, some of their most recent numbers, according to both China's National uh, Bureau of Statistics, uh, which is fudged. The data is fudged, obviously. But also some of the non-government data shows that their economy is, is foundering, that their PMI is dropping around or below 50. Which signifies, you know, a contraction for that. That's for manufacturing, which is obviously a huge part of, of China's economy. But, but a similar, a similar thing is being seen, um, for, for construction, uh, dropping from, from, you know, in the sixties to closer to 55, um, for services dropping close to 50. Um, this is a big deal because if you have, uh, that, that, you know, uh, slowdown in, in, you know, economic growth in China, you know, kind of the engine for global economic growth over the past 15 years. That is bad news for the global economy. And in fact, if you look at China's, here's where it gets interesting. If you look at China's credit impulse, this is a, this is a measure of how quickly, um, the rate of change of credit growth or contraction is occurring in an economy. Of course, in, in the case of China, it's always been credit growth for, for a very long time, but the rate at which it changes is in sort of a valley right now, right? We, we had sort of a peak in, in 2020, uh, as, as there's a massive amount of stimulus to, to counteract the effect of the, the COVID slowdown. There's a big peak in 2016, 2017 to counteract the, the slowdown, um, which, which almost crashed the whole global economy, by the way, that we witnessed back in 2015. Um, another peak in 2012, 20, or sorry, 2013. Another peak in 20, you know, 2009, 2010 to counteract the financial crisis, the global financial crisis. All of those peaks were there to counteract a slowdown in the global or in the Chinese economy. And, and they were all preceded by, by valleys, right? It's just a real quick up and down, up and down, up and down. The way at which this credit growth is debt creation in their economy ebbs and flows. Now, like I said, is at a value right now. And, you know, conventional wisdom, I guess, would say that, well, we shouldn't worry about their economy, because in the past, when they've run into this problem, they've just, you know, created, you know, made credit more easily obtained. And, and, and it grows, right? And the credit impulse shoots up again, we get another peak. And, and hey, guess what, disaster averted, and China's economy is, is back under control. Now, the problem this time around is, is twofold. Now, we'll, we'll say three, three different reasons. First off, manufacturing, a huge part of China's economy because of how much they export. That is starting to change. China is not, I believe, over the next couple of years, we, we're going to see a lot of manufacturing move away from China for political reasons, oftentimes, to other um, emerging market economies like Southeast Asia and others. And, and, and in some cases, in the case of like in the United States, we'll see some of that manufacturing come back home. Uh, that's a whole nother topic, but, but it's going to happen, right? And that is, well, it's going to be a tailwind. If you, if you're trying to pump a bunch of credit into a system and you maybe don't have that same capacity as before, it creates the problem. It creates a problem with, well, in, inflation and, and where does that credit growth end up? Uh, another, problem is is the real estate sector the real estate sector was a huge part of the growth over the past um you know 15 years 20 even longer than that going back to before 2000 we we've all seen the stories about the massive empty cities the huge infrastructure projects on and on and on that china undertook um for the past several decades that once again is not where it used to be the demand for that is, is falling. In fact, they're, they're ending up with a huge surplus, I've seen of, of, you know, pieces of infrastructure or, you know, real estate. And, and, you know, a lot of it was built really with the intention of, of jobs and, and credit growth and not so much with, with just serving the people and, and meeting demand, right? A huge surplus. The other headwind that they're facing is COVID. And I already really, uh, um, um, discussed this that, if they're trying to pump a ton of, of, of credit into the economy while the economy is struggling to operate at full capacity, whether it be the ports or factories or not because of, of COVID restrictions, that's another problem. Okay. So as of right now, um, the US dollar, and this is, I think this is pertinent, the US dollar in the U.S. yuan, you know, the U.S. dollar to yuan um, exchange rate is sitting around six point. We'll, we'll say just shy of six point four right now. Now historically, it's been much lower. Um Even as recent as 2018, it was as close to six point two five. But it's also been much higher, and and that's where I think it's heading. Meaning more yuan per per U.S. dollar, a weakening of the the Chinese yuan. In the past, it's been north of seven. To one, um, as high as you know, almost seven point two to one in the past, and I think that's where it's ultimately heading. I think this is pertinent because I do believe that as much as you know the U.S. or many European countries are struggling with inflation, I think it's going to also be a problem for China as well, because if they're going to pump a ton of credit into their system, but their system simply doesn't have the capacity, you know, a side effect of that is going to be well malinvestment and, and ultimately inflation a huge amount of credit growth that will be inflationary to their currency and to their economy that's destabilizing not only will we have you know a less economic growth coming out of china which is a a a bad thing for the rest of the world um but also it will be you know inflationary for for their economy and for their currency now more broadly speaking it it makes me wonder what china's end game is here I'm not an expert on Chinese politics or, or the CCP and, and their, you know, inner dealings and whatnot. However, um, even though I, you know, disagree with them on on a lot of things, I'm sure, and, and most Americans do, they're not stupid. They, they realize that there's a bubble that exists in their economy, that there is a lot of excess, that that excess was created as a byproduct of this massive amount of growth, this realization that they cannot let growth or let their, their GDP crash too quickly because even though, you know, authoritarian regimes are maybe more resilient, at least for a while until they break altogether, more resilient than some, you know, democracies to economic slowdowns and to, to, you know, unrest and whatnot, they don't want to have to deal with that if, if they can avoid it. And it makes me wonder what their end game is if they do continue to you know, uh, um, um, sort of uh, pump more and more credit, pump more and more stimulus into the economy, knowing that that may be inflationary and that it may just simply not work this time around. And it leads me, it's sort of a good segue into a broader discussion about this East versus West, uh, dynamic that, that many have talked about since, you know, the end of World War II. And how will will China and and Russia negotiate what would appear to be sort of a um, um you know a fork in the road for for the both of them? I want to segue real quickly into Russia. Russia is, of course, it, it would appear, preparing a, a a a large invasion of Ukraine. And, and and I could be wrong. I've talked about this in the past. I could be wrong, um, but it certainly would appear that that's the case. They've moved a lot of, of military forces and a lot of support forces, including medic teams and, and blood and, and stuff like that to, you know, Belarus or to their borders with, with Ukraine in order to appear that they're gearing up for an invasion. Based on what? Who knows? But that would appear to be where it's heading. And you gotta ask yourself, what's the end game there? Because the U.S. has said that, well, we're gonna assist Ukraine with weapons and maybe some other assistance, but, but we're not putting troops on the ground in Ukraine. You know, what does that look like? Are we gonna, are we, you know, are, are planes flying over, you know, whether they're reconnaissance or, or fighters? Is that, you know, not boots on the ground? I mean, I guess technically not. I don't know, but regardless more, more so China's, uh, sorry, us basically said, we're going to move a lot of our forces into NATO neighboring NATO countries. We're not going to, you know, let Russia proceed any further than Ukraine. If they do do that. And if they do invade Ukraine, we're going to, you know, do all sorts of different sanctions, economic sanctions, primarily. And you got to wonder what, what Russia's end game is with that, because that is going to be hugely damaging to their economy and to, to, um, the, you know, their currency and, and, you, you wonder if if China and Russia are in on this together, right? That that if Russia were to invade, you know, does does China do something crazy like like invade Taiwan, right? I mean, do they? I, I don't know. I mean, because because you wonder what what their motivations would be for both of those things, other than to, you know, create a distraction abroad. I mean, they taking a playbook out of out of the U.S. foreign policy. You know, if, if you have a problem at home, you know, create a problem abroad as a distraction. And you wonder if China and Russia are looking for a similar thing. You know, the other thing that people have talked about is, is that, you know, if, if Russia invades, U.S. has all these strong sanctions and it's going to, um, you know, really cripple their economy. And I'm not convinced. I'm not necessarily convinced. It's going to be damaging, no doubt. But the question is, can Russia and, and countries that are friendly to Russia, including China, um, including a lot of Central Asian countries, a lot of Middle Eastern countries, probably a lot of Southeast Asian countries. Can they keep its economy afloat? And, and furthermore, um, Russia, you know, they have a huge amount of, of reserves. I actually saw this posted just on Twitter last night that, um, January, uh, 2022, um, Russian international reserves are at an all-time high, almost $640 billion. Now that's, May seem small, but for an economy the size of Russia, which is you know sizably smaller than the U.S. or Chinese economy, that's a good amount of money. Um, and and actually, it's uh let's see here. According to to numbers I found on Trading Economics, it'd be somewhere around uh fifty-seven, almost fifty-eight billion of that is in gold. For those that are wondering, um, if my number is is correct on here. Um, and I'd actually have to multiply that real quick, actually. Um, so I'll get the actual exact number here. Cause it's not 53. It's, it's, um, I'm gonna get it here. Bear with me. About 133 billion of that actually is in, in gold. Um, so a huge amount in gold. And, and if they have a trading partner south of them in China, I mean, this would be, a, what I'm talking about here would be a huge shakeup of, of the global order. But, but again, you wonder what their end game is. How long can China string along uh, their economy by, by just, you know, goosing the system and and pumping more stimulus into it? I mean, you ask the same question about the U.S. economy. What is Russia's end game if they invade, if they invade Ukraine? Uh, What is China's end game with Taiwan? I mean, the thing about that is that both of those scenarios, hypothetically speaking, China can help with both of those problems because a a huge war in ukraine financed but okay so so let's play out a scenario here russia invades ukraine we'll forget about taiwan for now but but russia invades ukraine it's a destructive war it's a bloody war it's over in a month or two and eventually some cities are left in rubble others are fine but now russia controls controls ukraine um but but they got a problem they've got we're we're skyscrapers and apartment buildings were. Now they've got rubble. What are they going to do with that? Well, China, China can finance that and China can even help, you know, repair, rebuild, rebuild even better, pump a ton of money into, to Ukraine's economy. And, and you might think I'm joking, but like, that's, that's what they've done in a lot of, of African countries, a lot of Middle Eastern countries. Pumped a huge amount of money and stimulus into those economies and, and put a lot of people to work as well, right? Who's to say that they couldn't do the same in Eastern Europe? Who's to say they couldn't do the same in Taiwan? Hypothetically, a huge bombardment of, of Taiwan followed by a huge, now, now Taiwan's a little different because, well, Nobody in Taiwan, not very many people in Taiwan are going to be happy about China, you know, annexing it or occupying it. Whereas in Ukraine, you may find a little more support for Russia, but if nothing else, um, you're going to find a lot of people that will probably be more than happy to, to have their apartment building rebuilt or a huge amount of stimulus come into their economy. But I'm saying that this, this could be, you know, tied together. And maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe I'm seeing a connection where there is none, but, but I think it's something we have to pay attention to. Because, because if you're seeing what's happening in China's economy, if you're seeing Russia seemingly nearing a, a major invasion, you know the largest invasion since you know the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, we even have you know North Korea testing their their longest-range missile since uh, 2017, I think, an intermediate-range ballistic missile, something that wouldn't reach the U.S. but you know could reach a lot of nearby countries that are friendly to the U.S. Um, you got to wonder if this has come to a head in the coming weeks or months or at some point in 2022. So anyways, the final thing I wanted to discuss, I just want to loop back to what I talked about at the beginning of today's podcast. And that is um Spotify and Joe Rogan and this outcry against both of those um, parties over the Joe Rogan's recent guests and, and his, you know, podcast in general there's a lot to be said about joe rogan i think what i can say positively about joe rogan now now i don't listen to all of his podcasts i don't listen partly part of it's just time they're long right um but but i admire him for having such a wide variety of of opinions on his podcast oftentimes from experts in their own field these aren't just you know people like you and i coming on that, that no these are oftentimes experts or ceos or um People in government or people that know what they're doing, not not to say that people in government know what they're doing, but, but, you know, notable people. And there, there's a wide variety of opinions. And I think opinions are great. And I think, you know, specifically again, not going to go super in depth and hear about COVID and politics, but, but this idea that you, you can't question the official narrative on, on COVID is, is just ridiculous for my opinion because the official narrative has changed so many times. And this goes back to, to, you know, early, you know, February, March, April of 2020, when, when the pandemic was just starting and, and you had the surgeon general basically telling people not to wear masks and there was all this confusion about masks. And it's like the, you know, the medical community has to be thinking like, well, well hang on a second. Like, why are we questioning something like that? Um Masks have, have been known to be effective in, in slowing the transmission of, of at least some you know, viruses and bacterias for, for decades. Why are we questioning that now? Well, of course, eventually the narrative changed. Science didn't change, but the narrative changed. Right. And now all of a sudden, you know, questioning, <laughs> questioning that narrative, which previously was, was seen as a, as, as incorrect by, you know, mainstream media or by, you know, science with capital S. Um, it's, it's sort of ridiculous. And the list goes on and on. I mean, that's one that I, I sort of pick on because it's, it's, it's a little more clear cut for me, right? And again, I'm not going to get deep in depth about vaccines and all of that, but, but there's no, there's no denying the fact that from one year ago, when, when vaccines were just starting to be rolled out compared to now, the reality of what the vaccine is and what it is not has changed significantly. If I had come on here a year ago and said, Hey, this vaccine is not going to stop you from getting COVID. Not just like a, you know, it's, it's 3% of people that get the vaccine are going to get COVID still or still be at risk, but, but maybe a hundred percent or 90% that it's going to offer almost no protection from infection. Then, um, I I would, you know, some people would have supported me, but, but that would have been in huge disagreement with. Science with a capital S, great. Right? And if I had a big platform like Joe Rogan, I would be lambasted by lambasted, whatever you pronounce it, um, by by the liberal media. And 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 likewise about a lot of other topics. I mean, it's it's so weird where where this has slowly shifted from um, you know stop the spread, flatten the curve, to you know if, if you don't, if you're not one hundred percent in in favor of everybody getting two, three, maybe four vaccines, um, for, for ages, you know, five and up, uh, or else you're, you know, you know, a, a racist, a bigot, um, a science scenario, however you want to put it. I mean, it's it's ridiculous and it's based on politics and it's based on oftentimes identity politics with this calling of, of people racist, you know, anyone that doesn't believe what I believe on vaccines must be racist. You see the same techniques used, and in this, you know, this, you know, this whole convoy in 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 Canada, um, which which again is is the the convoy isn't ridiculous. What they're protesting is a ridiculous policy to mandate vaccines or something like that. When when we know that again that vaccines don't stop people from catching COVID, the, especially the most recent wave, and um, that that you know if if people are still going to catch it, then, then who cares if they don't, I mean, maybe they're at a higher risk of going to the hospital or dying, or maybe not, depending on what you believe, whatever. But, but the science, the mainstream science would show that, hey, they still can very easily catch it and very easily spread it. And so, I mean, what's, what's the point of that? It, it becomes a matter of personal choice, right? This becomes, you know, a, a matter of personal medical decision. This isn't, you know, you gotta wear your seatbelt, which whatever, but, but this is a, this is a medical decision about what somebody's put in their own body. It's, it's ridiculous. Anyways, um, that's maybe the most I've said about COVID and vaccines and whatnot since, since the middle of 2020, probably. But, 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 but point being, regardless of your opinions on this, I'm not in favor of any platform de, deplatforming somebody. For that, nor am I in favor of, of a central government restricting their freedom of speech. But, but I mean, these are things that need to be heard. I mean, if, 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 if his views are so dangerous or his guest views and what they say are so dangerous or so in, if they're dangerous, I, I would encourage somebody to show me where, where that danger lies. Um, that the, that they're not going to get the vaccine now or I, I, I don't. I don't know. Again, it becomes a personal decision for themselves, a personal medical decision, um, not, not a danger to others, right? And, and second off, you know, if, if you believe that, and many in the left do, um, believe that, that, you know, what, what he's saying is, is just a massive amount of disinformation that's unscientific, whatever. Well, then, Then maybe the problem isn't the media. Maybe the problem isn't Joe Rogan and his guests. Maybe it's the problem that there's a ton of people in the U.S. that just don't have a great amount of, of critical thinking, critical analysis, medical literacy, whatever you want to call it. But, but regardless, you know, if you're going to make those accusations, you know, being a leftist, you also have to hold a mirror to yourself and, and look in the mirror because those same things can be said about many people on the left. Again, when this started, and even today, there's a lot of medical, uh, there's a lot of of lack of medical literacy, on on both sides of this argument. Um, it, it's not something that is exclusive to to anti vaxxers and I'm not saying that anti-vax holding that opinion is a lack of medical literacy. I'm just saying that sometimes you get those, you know, people that are way out there who are who are entirely denying you know anything um resembling you know medical science that that is well i think accepted by the vast majority of people on both sides but again that's their own opinion and again usually it's not really affecting anybody else besides themselves so i could care less um but but people on the left are, are just as prone to that a, a, a poor ability to critical think i mean inconsistencies in their arguments and their views on the basis of politics or identity politics or party line or what i mean it's it's silly Right. And so, you know, I hope Joe Rogan continues to have people on his podcast that challenge the viewers, challenge the mainstream media, challenge Joe Rogan himself, challenge mainstream science. I mean, I, I hope that that's what continues to be the case. Right. And, and if, and if his views are so dangerous, then by all means, I hope somebody on the left creates their own equivalent. And, 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 you know, it's, I'm not a, I'm not i I'm not a Republican. I'm not a far right guy. I'm not a trumper, right? My longtime listeners that have listened to me enough know that that's the case. I'm, I'm libertarian, if anything, but, but I'm certainly not a leftist. And, and, and so that's why I'm, I'm kind of ragging on them. And I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody that's, that is a leftist, but, but, but sometimes these things, you know, still, still need to be said. And, and I hope you guys will listen anyways. Anyways, uh, the problem is that if the left were to try and create the equivalent to that, it, it wouldn't work. It would be an, an echo chamber for the mainstream media. They'd have a whole bunch of Washington Post, New York Times, um, uh, um, mainstream scientists some, take some people off the Pfizer board and have them come on, you know, whatever. Uh, they'd, you know, their f- first guest would be Anthony Fauci, right? Their first guest would be, um, Scott Gottlieb, who, who holds a fair bit of different views than, than Fauci or a lot of other people, but still a mainstream Pfizer kind of guy. You know, I mean, it'd be an echo chamber. And, and anybody that sort of questioned the official narrative, they, they wouldn't get on, or that wouldn't get published, or that would be cut from the final product. Right? If somebody goes on there, respected virologist, respected, um, um, epidemiologist, or respected government official from the CDC or something like that, goes on there and says, hey, um, I, I do disagree about this thing that Fauci talks about. That just doesn't get played. Right? Because, because if it does, well, that person's instantly canceled, right? Um, people dig through their Twitter history and find something that might be construed as racist or something like that. In the you know what I mean, it's just silly. It's silly. And it's, um, it's something that the left is really incapable of. They're, they're bound by their own rules are, 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 you know, really have, have to resort to mainstream media and, and government officials, right? They need to resort to, to Fauci. They need to resort to CNN or, or MSNBC. Or the Washington Post or New York Times or any host of other publications, they've been bound by their own rules and, and I have no sympathy for them in that, in that regard. And, and this isn't to just, um, say that this is a problem on the left. Um, you know, the right, uh, or, or on the other side of, of the topic, I think can sometimes be prone to the, some of the same kind of group thing, right? Um, you know, For, for those that are listening, which is probably a small amount at this point, I, I feel much more comfortable saying this. But, you know, me personally, now, now again, anybody can have whatever opinion they want as long as they're not trying to shut down somebody else's opinion. That's the one thing I'm really not a fan of. But, but, um, me personally, I think masks work in some cases, specifically n 95s, can 95s, maybe surgical masks. But beyond that, not really, and it has to be a lot of people that use them. I think masks, social distancing, shutdown should be something that is reserved for the highest risk of populations, and even that I'm kind of back and forth on because, hey, when I say high risk populations, I'm mostly talking about 65 plus, and and that's the population I work with as a physical therapist, and um, they uh, they've been struggling a lot for these last almost two years since these lockdowns started because. They need physical exercise. They need social connections in some of the last years of their life. I mean, you can't just, can't just lock them away until this pandemic's all gone and, and it won't be anytime soon, but maybe some extra protection. You know, I think, and this is, I think the way it hopefully will go eventually, but that COVID outbreaks in facilities, schools, whatnot might be treated similar to like influenza or RSV outbreaks, something that is a concern, a threat. But not something that we're going to lose our crap over. Um, I think that vaccines, they, they can help. I think vaccines do, ha- no, there's an asterisk here, and I'm, i getting to that here in a second. But, but I think vaccines do help reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. However, I also believe that the side effects have not been well studied. And I think that there has been a bit of a concerted effort to cover up some of that, right? And that's, that's a, I think it's, you know, maybe vaccines, especially now that we know that vaccines are more of a, um, um, something that's going to worsen the severity versus, you know, protect, um, somebody from outright infection should be something that's reserved for the highest risk of populations. Because if you have a 10 year old getting that vaccine with very little knowledge of the long term risks, and and you know the the risk of of hospitalization because of that vaccine is is minuscule because the risk to to be hospitalized or die in the first place is already minuscule then you got to ask yourself what's the benefit there but i th- i do think that to some extent they do work right but you know for how long and and against how many strains and and how many more rounds of vaccines do we actually need i'm vaccinated i've i have two um actually i got vaccinated in uh, about a year ago now um, a little over a year ago, uh, because I worked for that population. And after the first one, I actually didn't get the second one until just recently at the end of 2021. Um, because, I <laughs> well, it already had COVID at that point. Um, I, I knew I had a high amount of immunity and, um, and, and I, you know, finally had the second one in, at the end of December. Um, but, but, uh, I, I would be really hesitant to get any more. And, and, and that's, so, so, I mean, that's, I guess I'm in the camp of saying that, Hey, I'm vaccinated, but if you don't want to be I'll, more the power to you, I'm going to support that. Right. Absolutely. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's where I stand on all of this. And so I think that there is a little bit of, um, there, there's something to be said on the the other side, the, the people that deny that maybe there's no benefit from vaccines. Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there is, right? Um, the people that say that masks, period, don't work or that they spread it more easily. Well, I, I'm just, I'm just not, I'm just personally not convinced of that, right? Um, but, but, but again, you know, there's, there's a lot more layers to this. I think the government has really been negligent in promoting things like N95s. The government has been negligent in, in, um, in, in not approving or encouraging the use of different treatments. Um, I'm not just talking ivermectin, but but even you know other treatments um, from from other major pharmaceuticals that that are now more recently coming out that that were in development specifically for COVID. I mean, I, I think the, the ball has just been dropped, and I think a lot of it, and maybe negligent isn't the right word because some people would have fixed maybe a motive to that. Maybe they didn't want those things to happen because they wanted to be a vaccine or else type of approach i don't know i don't know but but those are my views and i think that there's a lot of people on both sides but but specifically the left that because people on the right more often than not are like hey you're vaccinated fine just don't tell me what to do right you don't want to take ivermectin fine just don't tell me what to do if you, you know what i mean um Whereas people on the left are like, ha, 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 you know, look at you taking horse medicine, horse dewormer, ha, ha, ha. Look at these people thinking that, you know, vaccines don't work. Um, meanwhile, you see this huge rash of politicians and celebrities that are double jab plus, you know, booster that are out because of the Omicron wave. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's silly. And, and, and I, you know, appreciate the voice of, of Joe Rogan and others. Even if I don't agree with Joe Rogan on many things or all things, there's a lot that I probably don't. The final thing I want to mention here is that me personally, the reason I don't talk about this here much on my podcast is because personally, this isn't a huge deal for me. Um, one day, five years from now, 10 years from now, a lot of people will forget about this. I, personally, I think that, that this is actually going to leave a lot of scars in our, in our political and societal discourse in the U.S. and abroad. Um, like it or not, I think that's, that's going to be a side effect of all of this madness, but, In the whole scheme of things, in the scheme, in light of eternity, because I am a Christian, I'm a God-believing Christian. This stuff just doesn't matter to me nearly as much as my eternity and and your eternity matter, right? And so, this stuff is just stuff I don't. You know, I, I I explain all this stuff like I care about it, but I don't as much as a lot of other people do, because ultimately, for me, my political views or my views on COVID, whatever. There's a lot of people out there that are, that do not know Jesus, that are not a believer. And, and if I were to tell them my views, regardless if I was a, a liberal, a libertarian, a conservative, a trumper, a Biden supporter, uh, whatever else they're going to interpret that a specific way. And unless I agree with them, like it or not, a lot of the way society is wired today is that if I disagree with them, that's going to lessen my ability to witness to them, to share the gospel with them. They are going to view my actions and my life through that lens of, well, so-and-so is an anti-vaxxer, or so-and-so is pro-vaccine. So-and-so is a Trump supporter, or so-and-so is a liberal. Whatever. And that's not beneficial to, to my, my goal in that, or, or my desire to, to, you know, live out the Great Commission. And so that's why I don't talk about it a lot. It's not because I'm afraid. Um, it, I mean, truth be told, I know that, you know, my views are not always going to line up with, with a lot of people in, in the libertarian or the left or the right wing communities. And because of that, I was sure I, I would lose some, some viewers, but, but a lot of it goes back to the fact that I don't want people to, be turned off to the gospel or God because of my political views, because my political views, I'm not even convinced they're right. I have them, but nowadays I'm not even convinced they're right. I, I'm just honestly convinced of the truth of the Bible and convinced of the truth of the gospel. And that's what's most important to me. So for those that, that don't know Jesus, that don't know God, um, I'd encourage you, I'd encourage you to to try it out. Right. And that can mean a lot of different things. Uh, Prayer, I think, is the first start, right? Um, a Bible or or even, you know, if you skip a Bible for now to start off with and you just go like find a podcast, find like a, like a sermon on a podcast, right? There's plenty of good ones out there. Um, from a good Bible believing Christian, um, somebody that's not going to water down things, that somebody that's not fire and brimstone, right? There's a lot of awesome sermons out there that can give you a sense of what Christianity really is. But obviously, the Bible is super important as well. Um, finding a local church to try out. I mean, a lot of local churches have great programs for people that are just trying it out and trying to figure out what this is all about. I mean, a lot of it, what it comes down to is realizing that, you know, I'm, I'm imperfect, that I've sinned, I've done wrong before God, and and that I need a Savior, that we all need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. And that's what it comes down to for me. And so I, I, I hope that you are a believer. And if not, well, hey, I love you anyways. Um, and I'm happy to have you here, but more importantly, I'm happy to, you know, have you consider what I'm talking about here today and consider Jesus as, as maybe something that you need in your life. Um, if it's something that you've gone back and forth on, something that, you know, I believe in God, but I don't know what God or I don't, you know, um, I'm telling you right now, the truth of the Bible, unequivocally, is the truth, the number one truth that this world needs to hear. So anyways, as always, I'd like to thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast, and God bless.